A group of 10 of us spent uh, the last eight days in Marseille, France, connecting with some churches, a French Protestant church and several immigrant churches, a Russian church congregation we spent time with, a Congolese congregation, a congregation from Sierra Leone, and a congregation from Romania. We just got in yesterday afternoon about 5 to 5.30, which means with the seven-hour time difference, there's seven hours ahead of us, I was up at 1 o'clock this morning wondering where you were, uh, ready to get with it. But uh, it'll take a day or two to get uh, the body clock back in shape. But we uh, had a wonderful trip. We'll be informing you as a church congregation of things that happened uh, on that trip, things that we, impressions we have and truths that we learned uh, serving uh, way far away from here, about 5,000 miles removed, to a place that uh, is in desperate need of Christ as every corner of the world is and always will be. So thank you for the opportunity to be a part of a church that thinks beyond uh, just these walls, but thinks of shoeboxes going across the world and is willing to send uh, a team of people from our church congregation to connect with people who love the same Lord but live in vastly different, in a vastly different environment than we do. We're reading the scriptures together each and every week, each and every day. We have daily, daily Bible readings. Hope you've been keeping up with those. We're about through with uh, the book of First Peter. As a matter of fact, you can leave the room today in a bit when we're done, and you can pick up the daily Bible reading guide for the Christmas season. It is hot off the press. The booklets are there in the info center. The readings will begin on the first day of December, which so happens to be a Sunday. And we'll be working through those weeks, the days leading up to Christmas, thinking about the Lord Jesus. And I hope that those readings and the idea of thin places, I want you to remember that phrase. That's what's on the cover of the daily Bible reading booklet for the month of December. That you will grasp what it means to recognize a thin place, a place where God meets us and He is so close to us. He feels so removed at times. But there are thin places in Scripture where he comes right up near to us. And Christmas is certainly one of those. So I urge you to pick up that booklet and get ready. And when we begin those readings on December 1, uh, you'll be in touch and connected with your church family. But we've been reading in First Peter. We've been reading in First Peter chapter 4. And we look this morning at First Peter 4 verses 12 through 19. I think it's a fitting passage based at least upon where Stephen and nine others have been in these past days in a part of the world where it's vastly different to live the Christian life than where we live. Peter is writing to a group of people who faced fires of persecution, furnaces, if you will. They were under intense pressure. But the fires and the furnaces and the future, when you look at them all together, out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Those fires, those furnaces, those, that future that they have was a bright one. They had to understand that they were going to go through some trials and some tests, and history proved that out. If 1 Peter was written when I think it was written, around A.D. 61 to 63, the evil emperor Nero had yet to set fire to Rome and blame the Christians. 
But he did do that just a few years after the writing of this letter, I think. And so when Peter is talking about the fiery ordeal, he doesn't realize perhaps that he's not just speaking figuratively, but literally. Nero would say the just punishment for those Christians, those Christ followers who set fire to the capitals of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, deserve to be lit up as torches themselves as a fitting punishment. That did happen. It wasn't that just people suffered, but it was that believers suffered. And I think what Peter tells us in these verses, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, is that we should expect no less in the day in which we live. So let's take it a verse or a couple of verses at a time. We're not going to read the whole passage and come back and work through it, but let's break it down into some manageable sections and ask God to speak to us. Verse 12 talks about the fires of suffering. And he says, when it comes to the fires of suffering, you can expect it. You should expect it. Don't be surprised. And that's what he says. Let's read the verse. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter comes right out of the gate saying, You're going to suffer. You're going to face hardship. He's talking to believers. And he said, don't be surprised by it. Don't let it take you by surprise. Don't act like it's something that you never saw coming. He said, the day in which we live, the first century, and he could well say the day in which we live right now, the 21st century. As Christians, we can expect to go through trials and persecution. Now, have we in our part of the world gone through what he's talking about? I think not. Are there those in the world today that suffer much like Peter was was prophesying these first century believers would suffer? Absolutely, of course. The persecuted church is scattered throughout parts of the world. It simply tells us in our day and time that when mishaps and tragedy and when, when ridicule comes our way because of our belief in Jesus, and it will come if it hasn't already to you, you can expect it. The next two verses, verses 13 and 14, talk about suffering for Christ. He's, he's narrowing down that fire of suffering. He says you can expect it, but he says it's chiefly going to be suffering for Jesus. And when he talks about suffering for Jesus, he says you need to rejoice in it. Look what he says in verses 13 and 14. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's some words in those two verses I want to ask you to focus on for just a moment. He talks about having fellowship with Jesus. He talks about our sufferings being a fellowship. Now, the word that's in 1 Peter 4.13 is he uses the word share. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, that word share in the Greek is that word koinonia that is used so many times in the English transliteration that it's almost become an English word. Churches are named koinonia. Bookstores are named koinonia Christian bookstore. 
But always remember that even though koinonia is that unique New Testament word that we have described as fellowship, Peter here uses it and says, if you share in the sufferings of Jesus, you have fellowship, you are connected with him. What does he tell us to do? To rejoice. To rejoice. He talks about future glory here. Notice he said, if you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So at the revelation of his glory, of God's glory, you can rejoice. And then in verse 14, he says, if we suffer, then we have the spirit of glory of God resting upon us. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that if we're willing to suffer and when we suffer for the cause of Christ that we're going to share in the glory that belongs to Jesus at his return, his second coming. He is due to make a second appearance. We don't know when it will be. It could be any moment, some think. Every century, every generation looks toward the fact that the coming of Christ could be in their lifetime, and so ought we. And that's part of the future glory. But he also talks about the glory of God resting upon us. Think about that. It's not just that we suffer for Christ and are able to say, well, one day Jesus will return and we will see him in his glory. But he says, in everyday life, you have the presence of the glory of God resting upon you. He talks about present help from God. That when we suffer, we're not going through that suffering alone. He said there in verse 14... If you are reviled for the cause of Christ or for the name of Jesus. If, in the English language, carries with it uncertainty. If you cleaned your room, I'll let you go to McDonald's. But in saying that as a parent, do you think the room is going to be cleaned? Absolutely not. That's why you said if. But in the Greek language, they're very, very precise and If clauses in the Greek language are one of four, and this one is one that carries with it the idea of certainty. So really, a a proper English substitute for the word if would be since. Since you are going to suffer for the cause of Christ is what he means. He's not saying if as though I'm not sure that you will or you may or you may not. He's saying because Because since it is a fact that you and I are going to face troubling times because of our commitment to Jesus. He tells us that we will what? Have that fellowship with Jesus. Have that future glory and the glory of God and the present help upon our lives in the here and now. But he's not done. If you notice, the passage continues in in verses 15 through 18. He tells us to examine our lives. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? 
Whoa, what's he talking about here? Let's back up and review what he says. He, first of all, there in verse 15, it's like he's asking a question. Why am I suffering? When you and I find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves under pressure, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why is this happening? In other words, what is the source of it? Not necessarily an explanation as God explained this to me. But he says, you've got to determine if your suffering is self-inflicted or if it's because of your commitment to Jesus. Now, I noticed here when he said, make sure that none of you suffers, he comes up with a fourfold list. He says, make sure you don't suffer as a murderer. Okay, all right, that's pretty clear. Make sure you don't suffer as a thief. Okay, those are two classes of misbehavior that speak for themselves. We know what murder is. We know what it means to be a thief, to steal something, take something that does not rightfully belong to you. And then he says, don't suffer as an evildoer. That's an umbrella term. He's used it before in chapter 2. And he uses it again here in chapter 4. As kind of an overriding description of, of any activity that would be that would be cruel, ugly, evil. But it's this fourth word. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a what? As a troublesome meddler. Troublesome meddler. Folks, this is the only place in the New Testament where this, this term, these two words, are used. Some people think Peter coined this word, made it up himself. It literally means one who is overly nosy about other people's affairs. Now look what he's done. He has just put, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer as someone who is nosy about the affairs of people you have no business in being nosy about. He's not talking about high-handed espionage here. He's talking about... Oh, well, let's just, let's just get, get to the root of it. He's talking about every single last one of us. If you think that I can describe troublesome meddler and you're going to be thinking about someone else who's guilty, then just go ahead and stop right now where you are and just admit to yourself that you are a troublesome meddler. Because every single one of us are at one time or another. I mean, just play out any scenario you want. It can be women talking to women. It can be men talking to men. It doesn't matter. Most of the time, more troublesome meddling goes on during the prayer request time in your Bible study group than you could ever imagine. Where does it come from? It comes from a group of people like you and me who feel we have the right to know everything, who feel like we are entitled to the information 
so that we can use it however we want. And most of the time we cover it up and we clothe it in spiritual terms and we act like we're advising someone or we're helping to guide someone. Call it what it is. It's Peter's unique word, troublesome meddler. It causes more disruption, causes more suffering, self-inflicted suffering than anything else he can think of and it ranks right up there with murder and thievery and evil doing. He says, when you find yourself in trouble, ask yourself, why am I suffering? Is, is what I'm experiencing the result of the simple fact that I cannot keep my mouth shut? Because most of the time, that's exactly the problem. Because what does troublesome meddling do? Is there a victim? Everyone's a victim. Why can't we just live and let live instead of having to pry and gossip and hurt other people? He talks about the kind of suffering that is worthy in the next verse. You know, verse 15 was, hey, don't, don't even think that you're suffering for something righteous if you're a troublesome meddler. You're not. You caused it. You brought it upon yourself. Stop it. Confess it. Quit it. But he says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. but glorify God in his name. Peter uses the word Christian here. The term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. I know it sounds strange, but it's used here, and it's used in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Those are the only three verses in the entire New Testament where those who followed Jesus were called Christians. Peter says... If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Why would he ask that? Why would he ask the question about being ashamed for Jesus? Am I ashamed for him? I, I think I know why, because Peter was at a time in his life. We know that. There was a time in Peter's, Peter's walk with Jesus where he denied Jesus, denied knowing him three times in just a short period of time on the eve of his crucifixion. And it was almost enough to keep Peter from ever moving forward in his walk and devotion with Jesus again. But Jesus took him by the shore of Galilee where he began that relationship with Peter three years earlier. When he said, quit fishing and come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That came full circle. And on that same sea of Galilee, the shore of it, after a night of fishing, several days after the crucifixion, when Peter decided, I'm just going to go fishing, I've got nothing better to do, that Jesus restored him. And I think Peter looked back at that event in his life, and he said, if you suffer for being a Christian, don't be ashamed of it. But how many of us are? How many of us are tight-lipped about sharing Christ because we're embarrassed? We're ashamed. Tradition tells us that Peter learned that lesson. And that when it came to the real test of his commitment to Jesus, 
He was willing to go to a cross and die just as Jesus did. But tradition tells us, the Bible doesn't. Tradition tells us, outside historical sources tell us that Jesus, uh, that Peter died with his head face down, head going toward the ground because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same position, in the same manner as Jesus did. See, he's saying, don't be ashamed of Jesus. And then those last verses, 17 and 18, talk about unbelievers. And this is his logic. He says... It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He said, I'm I'm not kidding here. There's going to be some troubling times. Christians are going to be persecuted. Christians are going to be ridiculed. Christians are going to be martyred. And this is a judgment. It's simply the things that are going to happen, Peter says. And as God is moving through history, his people are going to suffer. And as they identify with Jesus, and as they are not ashamed of Jesus, he says, this judgment, this time is going to begin with us. And he says, if it begins with us, just think what will happen to those who have no use for God, who have never put their faith in God. And he even pulls an Old Testament quote. Those are those all capital letters there. It's Proverbs 11.30, where it says, God even punishes his own. Think of David. Think of Moses. Moses never able to enter that promised land. Why? Because he... Because he overstepped his authority. Because he took credit for something that only God could do. And he's saying if if God so brings judgment upon his own that he loves, Moses and David, who committed the sin of adultery, was never able to build that temple that he dreamed of building. Then he says, don't be surprised at it. And think of what will happen to those who have no connection with God. You see, it's all about commitment when you get right down to it, isn't it? Verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Help me here, Lord. What do you mean here? If we suffer according to the will of God, what are we really doing? We have to make a choice. And he says you need to entrust, entrust your life, your soul to God. Put your life in his hands. Entrust is an unusual word in the New Testament. They didn't have banks back then. They didn't have a place to go put their money. There wasn't a savings and loan. There wasn't any place that was going to give you interest and you could take it and put it in a safe deposit box. So when you had to go off on a trip or when you left your home for a while or when you were doing something very important and you had money that you needed uh, kept safe, you had to what? You had to trust someone. You had to entrust it and put it in the hands of of a dear friend perhaps or a family member, someone who would take care of your belongings. Peter says, when you suffer according to the will of God, you're entrusting, you're putting your life into the hands of the creator, of God himself. Last week we went to church a lot. Every night. Two hours minimum service, and you gripe, 
You have no right to gripe. (laughs) These people gathered. They even changed the day they normally would meet during the week because we were there. That way we were able to worship with all these congregations. Romanian congregation, about 100 people there counting us. We were 10 of them, 90 of these people. Two and a half to three hours, nonstop. I mean, they sing and they pray for one another and they want me to pray for them, nonstop. And then the preacher wants to get up and say a word and then he wants me to say a word. If I don't go long enough, he tells me to get back up there and keep going. And I think I know why. These people love church. They love church because where they live, it is their life. Where they live, how they live. The opportunity to gather with their Christian brothers and sisters is a privilege, it's an opportunity, and the clock is thrown away. Because it doesn't matter. Because the more time they spend there, it's the highlight of their week. For us, for us, it's a social gathering. For us, it's, oh, we'll go because Junior doesn't have a tournament to play today. The congregation from Sierra Leone meet in a little, it's just a a storefront warehouse in a street in Marseille. You go in the door, and it's just a shotgun room. There were maybe 40, 45 people there. We were 10 of them. Service drew to a close. They took an offering. took an offering every, every place we went, and I made sure that I had Euro to put in that offering plate because I wanted them to know that we cared about their their situation in their church. So I wanted to them to see me putting, not coins, but paper euro into the offering plate. Well, they took an offering to Sierra Leone Church. I, I didn't really think about the translation the preacher was saying because it was an offering. But then when the service was over, he brought me an envelope, and it had my name on it and our team's name on it. And they had taken an offering for us. He gave me this envelope, David Brown, our missionary that we partner with there who's fluent in, in French and can translate. He said, he said Stephen, Desmond, the pastor, wants you to have. He's, they took this offering for you. And I said, David, we just took an offering for them, and he's giving it to me? He said, yes, the whole offering is for you and, and your team. And David said, Stephen, be very careful what you say now, or you will offend him. So I took this envelope, and it was full of money. And I thought real hard, and I prayed a very short prayer. Lord, help. (laughs) (laughs) And these words came out of my mouth. Desmond, merci beaucoup, thank you very much. But we want to invest this offering back in your church. When David told him that, he had this look on his face. I said, oh, no, I must have said the wrong thing. 
And then he said back to me, he said, Stephon, he said, we believe in the principle of giving and receiving. And you're telling me that you received this in the right manner and you want to sow it back and plow it back into the work of our church. Is that what you're telling me? And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I said, but just so you'll know for sure, let's go back here where the other nine of our friends are, the other nine of our team are. And I stood before our group of people in a little semicircle with the pastor and with David, and I explained this. And they nodded their heads, of course, that this is what they wanted to do. And so we were able to give that money back to a church that desperately needed it. But why? Because they first sincerely wanted to give it to us. Oh, what's wrong with this picture here? I mean, here we are in a church building like this. Any of those congregations came and set foot on our property. They wouldn't know what to think. They'd know what to do. They would do the things that we should be doing, but we don't. Because you see, for us, church is... Is it a, a, a convenient appendage, something we add to the menu of the week? Is it something we do because there's nothing else to do? Is it something we can do so that we can be seen? Is it something we can do because at work we don't have authority, but here in the church I'm going to speak my peace? And we really don't have a clue of what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ and rejoice in it and to entrust our lives to the one who created us. You see, unbelievers have a present controlled by the past. What I mean, a present life. Those who put no faith in God, those who do not obey Him, their present-day living is always controlled by their past, what they regretted, what they didn't do right. But for believers, those who know the Lord, we have a present that's controlled by the future, by what God has in store for us. And for me, it just took a native of a country in Africa who immigrated to Marseille, France in hope of a better life who has gathered with about 50 other Sierra Leone natives who started a church, who believe in what church really is. And it makes me ashamed because a lot of my time within the life of my church is spent being a troublesome meddler, a person with an agenda. God, help us all. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house to proclaim your name. Help us to make decisions this morning that honor you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We offer an invitation as we conclude this service this hour.
We're going to sing a hymn of commitment in a moment, and there are going to be ministers and deacons standing right down front here to receive any of us who would have spiritual decisions to make. Why would you want to make a choice today? Well, it could be here, then you're here without Jesus. You don't know him as your personal Lord and Savior. You've never said, Lord, forgive my sin, come into my life and lead me. That's a choice you make. It's a prayer you pray, and we can help guide you in that choice that you must make. But we can help guide you. Maybe God would lead you to join our church today. Maybe this is where you participate. This is where you belong. And if you want to be a part of a church family that, once again, isn't perfect, but my goodness, we're going to spend every day of our lives trying to align our church's mission with what God would have us to do. If that's the kind of place you want to belong, then we invite you to come and join us today. Just come forward. Join our church today. Maybe God would convict you of a choice you need to make concerning obedience. Maybe Eva Jensen's baptism of her own choosing reminds you that you've held back on that. You had not been willing to follow through with that. Why in the world not? I don't know. It's a sign of obedience, so obey. Come forward. Let us know. We'll find a time for you to experience believer's baptism. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you. Ray Lowry will be standing on one side over here. and Sandy Tamberg will be on the other. And Lon Baugh is up in the balcony three of our people who are just simply saying I will pray with you what more do we need we need to respond and I ask you to do that now so we stand, we sing, we wait for you here right now